0: In the storm of protests after the murder of George Floyd, many say that having more African-American and Latino officers will reduce police violence and force used against people of color. But will it? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still somehow hanging on to that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. In the weeks and now months since the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Richard Brooks, demonstrations have occurred everywhere. The call of Black Lives Matter has been the overlaying constant. In many places, there were also calls for reform, even for a kind of starting over with the complete abolition of police departments and the creation of something new. One of the things called for, though, is not new. It's been kind of a touchstone for police reform and change for a very long time. We need, we have long needed, more police officers of color. More police departments should resemble the demographics of the populations they served. Too many cities and towns with black and brown populations have police forces that are largely white. For example, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, nearly half of the population is non-white, but the police department is 83% white. In Philadelphia, 77% of the population is non-white, but almost 60% of the officers are white. Now, to be sure, in some police departments, diversity has increased over the long run, even if just a little bit. But in many police departments, such as Pittsburgh, where I live, diversity isn't increasing, it's actually falling. This is due to the expiration of the court mandates of the 1970s and 80s that required hiring more people of color and women, too. And those court mandates can't continue because the law has changed, and that large group of diverse hires from that era is now retiring. The assertions about the benefits of increasing diversity typically center on diversity in the police force as either a good thing in itself or as a way to build all-important trust with those police serve. Here's a little audio from Denver Police Television Station, Channel 7 ABC, that's owned by Scripps Media. The speaker here is a professor giving her take on the importance of a diverse police force. Take a listen. At the end of the day, this is good for both the communities and the police, right? Because the police need to be able to do the work that they need to do to keep um, to help with things related to crime. Um, And then but they can only do that if the community trusts them and is willing to engage with them and work with them. Okay, Good. Trust is fundamental to good police work. But there's another assertion we sometimes hear, too. With more black and brown officers, police will use force, will use particularly deadly force, less often against black and brown citizens. And that, with the deaths of so many that we've all seen in video after horrible video, is the most immediate question what you see on so many protest signs, maybe the second most commonly after you see Black Lives Matter, is stop killing us. It's basic. And today we want to ask whether increasing diversity in police forces can help us get there. And we have just the right person to help us understand whether this might be the key to unlocking things or not. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Rashawn Ray. Dr. Ray is Professor of Sociology and also the Executive Director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, called LASER, at the University of Maryland, College Park. He is also one of the co-editors of Contexts Magazine, Sociology for the Public. He is currently a Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution In Washington, Dr. Ray's research addresses the mechanics that create and maintain racial and social inequality. Of particular interest to us is his focus on police-civilian relations. His work also speaks to the ways that inequality may be reduced through racial uplift, activism, and social policy. Dr. Ray has published numerous books, articles, and book chapters, over 50 all told, and 15 op-ed articles. One of those books, Race and Ethnic Relations in the 21st Century, History, Theory, Institutions, and Policy, has been widely adopted in college courses across United States. We're recording our interview today on Zoom, and I apologize in advance for all the noise you'll hear in the background. That is somebody cutting down a tree near my home studio. Dr. Rashawn Ray, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
1: Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm so glad you're here. Now, Unfortunately, in our time, the constant and awful refrain uh, of police killings of black and brown people at the hands of police officers. I mean, this didn't begin with the murder of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Richard Brooks or Eric Garner or Philando Castile. One way to address this we hear so often is through hiring more police officers who are themselves black and brown people. Now when cities and police departments do this, does it reduce violence and violent incidents against black and brown civilians in those jurisdictions?
1: Not necessarily. So the research that I've conducted, and I've conducted a lot of research with police officers from conducting dozens of implicit bias trainings to interviewing hundreds of officers, a lot of ride-alongs, having Um, Over a hundred officers go through our virtual reality decision-making program. What we found is that officers' race um, really doesn't have a big bearing on the level of bias that police officers hold against Black people or even their behavior. Now, there is some recent research suggesting that the race of the police chief or the police commissioner matters. But I tend to think that that particular variable comes along with a set of policy changes oftentimes at the municipality level that impacts what's going on. So in short, no, not as much as people think. Now, on one hand, optics does matter, right? Optics Optics. matter. Mm -hmm. So in terms of seeing officers of color, in terms of seeing officers who are women, that matters. I think it is something oftentimes people have an emotional response, a cathartic response to seeing police officers that are more representative. So on that front, it can have an impact on the way that the public is viewing law enforcement. When we look at use of force, when we look at decision-making behavior, when we look at respectability, the race of the officer doesn't seem to matter as much as people think.
0: That is so interesting. So leadership level, race might matter uh, as long as it's accompanied by real policy changes. Um, One of the reasons that you've discussed though that that the race of officers doesn't necessarily matter has to do with place. And you've said that people sometimes confuse or conflate the effect of race and place. Can you tell us why you think that?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the assumption that people make is that simply because a person, say, is Black or Latino, and then they are interacting with a civilian population, in a community that's predominantly black or Latino, that those people come from that community or that they understand that community. And that's oftentimes not the case. So black people, Latinos, Asians are heterogeneous. So it's not one size fit all. And simply because you have a black officer, that doesn't mean that black officers from that predominantly black neighborhood where they happen to be policing. However, it is also true that if you have a predominantly black neighborhood, if an officer is from that neighborhood, they are more likely to be black. That is also true, but it doesn't necessarily always mean that simply because you have a black officer that they're gonna be better for the predominantly black neighborhood. We see some of the same outcomes. What we do need, however, is to ensure that officers are representative of the community. And oftentimes that doesn't necessarily mean always where they come from. Oftentimes it means where they are currently. When we talk about community policing, community policing isn't simply about a police officer playing basketball or football with an officer in the street. Instead, community policing is an experience. And part of that experience is oftentimes what officers have with predominantly white and affluent neighborhoods all the time, where they go to church in those neighborhoods. They send their kids to school in those neighborhoods. They exercise in those neighborhoods. They shop and eat in those neighborhoods. Those are the same sort of experiences that we need in predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods, which is one of the reasons why I advocate for a mandatory housing program where officers receive a housing subsidy and they are mandated to stay within the municipality. So what that might mean, say, for Prince George's County, which is a million people, 550 square miles, officers can choose to live in any of those 550 square miles. If we are talking about Washington, D.C., which of course is only about seven miles across, or maybe uh, the city council decide to, to decides to expand the geographic range of that program to be maybe five or 10 miles outside of the Washington, D.C. limits, where officers are still around the beltway and interacting in Washington, D.C. But I think that will go a long way to improve police community relations and reduce uh, use of force and police brutality.
0: So what you seem to be talking about is being of the place, um, that it matters more for an officer to be invested in the place personally, to be experiencing it, to be living in it, that that is the thing that really matters.
1: That's exactly right. You know, one, one thing that's been lost right now with the, the perception of the defund the police movement is really what they're asking for is a reinvestment in communities, And part of that reinvestment isn't only a financial investment, which is a a huge part of it, but it's also a communal investment. It's also a humanistic investment. And part of that human investment, that human capital investment in particular, comes from police officers and other social services to be of the community. And this is the reason why I think when we look at officer-involved shootings or police killings, and of course, I've analyzed... Too many of them, um, unfortunately. And because, of course, we know that in any given year, about a thousand people or more are killed by police. And we just talk about Black Americans. We're talking about every 40 hours, a Black person is killed by the police. So we're talking about a lot of people. But if we only look at those particular incidents, one of the things I've noticed is the pause oftentimes that officers give when they interact with white people. That's That's not simply about what people would call white privilege. Instead, I think is more so about an unconscious bias, oftentimes a more positive bias that gives white people the benefit of the doubt and does Uh not give black people the benefit of the doubt. And the reason why white people are given the benefit of the doubt is because officers are more likely to be of their community, as you note. So when they're interacting with a person, they say, wow, that looks like, that kind of looks like the dad, another dad in my kid's school. wow, it looks like the woman who I go to the gym with. And that slight pause mm-hmm. gives them the ability, interestingly, to be a bit more rational or even give a bit more deference to the person who they're interacting with. And that deference and that level of humanity is oftentimes not given to people who are black, particularly if, you're, if they're living in a black, low-income neighborhood, but even if they're living in a predominantly white neighborhood.
0: Now, that is interesting. You know, I have done some implicit bias training myself, uh, both taken it and given it uh, to uh, legal organizations, nonprofits, even some law firms. And one of the things that I know that, that is important in that field is this idea, uh, this, this idea of implicit bias being about fast thinking versus the idea of slower thinking. Uh, let's maybe unpack this idea of implicit bias for listeners who may who are maybe not as familiar with it. What does implicit bias mean, and where does it show up?
1: So, implicit bias is the unconscious association that people make between two seemingly unrelated things, and so part of thinking through that. If we take, say, the implicit association test out of Harvard, which I would recommend for people to take. They can take them Mm -hmm. on the computer. You take them about a host of things. You know, implicit bias isn't simply about race. It's about everything. It's about gender. It's about sexual orientation, age, weight, skin tone and the like. But one of the tests they have is about race and weapons, whether or not people are more or less likely to associate weapons with black people or white people. I've given this particular implicit association test to hundreds of police officers before they take our virtual reality program. So as part of how we measure their unconscious attitudes. And what we find is that police officers are more likely to associate weapons with black people versus white people. Even though if we just look at the number of weapons that are in the United States and who has them, white overwhelming people-
0: Overwhelming number, yes.
1: Overwhelming number of white people are more likely to own- and have weapons Uh, because I mean weapons aren't cheap and so you know part of this what people don't, don't oftentimes realize when we talk about weapons or drugs is that they cost money so oftentimes there is a class gradient to that but with that being said we also find that officers regardless of race or gender hold similar biases so this isn't a white officer thing it's not a white male officer thing it's not even an officer thing it's just a person thing we also make associations for other things, such as who should stay at home with kids versus who should work. Right. And of course, people are more likely to think that women should stay at home with kids. Well, the implications of that become that women are paid less in the labor market because the perception is that some kind of way they're going dis- to disinvest from work, even though oftentimes when they stay at work, they work just as hard, if not harder. Anyone with mm-hmm. small kids knows that. It doesn't mean you're not exhausted. It doesn't mean that you're not tired. That's right. But you're using your time more efficiently than than you were before. And so, I mean, there are a host of different things. But for policing, when implicit bias starts to have an impact on decision making, and particularly what I call when implicit bias goes on steroids, because police officers are making extremely quick decisions, as you noted, they are oftentimes making those decisions under stress. Mm -hmm. They are oftentimes making those decisions when they are exhausted. And that is a recipe where implicit bias goes on steroids and racial bias can be deadly, not only for the person who they're interacting with, but for police officers themselves. And it highlights one of the most egregious statistics that when we talk about policing and race that matter in America, and that's the simple fact that black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking or when they don't have a weapon. And that is an example of George Floyd. He didn't have a weapon. He wasn't attacking. But there are others like George Floyd, who a lot of people don't know, who don't become a hashtag like George Floyd has become, who doesn't have their murder captured with video That's and social right. footage. And so we have to think about the way that implicit bias plays a role in policing and the rest of society.
0: So with that in mind, you can see how important it is that a person who is implicitly biased in favor of a group, would pause, would take that extra little second and have that that grounding of, oh, I see this person or is like this person, somebody like this person in the community that would give the the, the officers conscious beliefs and conscious control a chance to assert itself.
1: That's exactly right. I mean part of the way that we keep uh, implicit bias and unconscious bias in check is to be conscious of it. And to your point, what you just described, that happens oftentimes with white people, where because officers have a plethora of interactions with white people, not simply because they're police officers, but because they are more likely, more likely to live in those communities around the country, that slight pause, Allows for their conscious attitudes to come to the forefront. Not only do they make more rational decision making, but they are also more likely to de escalate and we've seen a lot of incidents like that, where a white person and a black person behaves the same a black person is shot and killed and a white person, the officer never even at times pulls their weapon. And if they do pull it, they end up not shooting their weapon because then they fall on to to de-escalation training, which is another big problem in policing because when officers go through the police academy, they receive about 50 hours of firearm training,
0: Mm -hmm. but they receive
1: less than 10 hours of de-escalation training. And that is completely out of whack with what they experience in everyday life.
0: Oh, this is such an important point, isn't it? I mean, there are so many aspects of police training and culture that seem to amp up the fear and and, and danger quotient of every civilian interaction, when in reality, the police job is 150, 180 degrees different.
1: Without a doubt. I mean, to your point, officers train for worst case scenarios. They train for use of force interactions. But nine out of 10 calls for service have nothing to do with violence at all. It at doesn't all. mean that can't turn violent, but overwhelmingly, they are violent at all. And so what happens is police officers have a set of tools in their arsenal, not necessarily just equipment, but more so how they approach a situation. Skills. They have a set of tools and skills in their arsenal that is about use of force in worst case scenarios they show up to the scene and they need a different set of skills. They need communication skills. They need de-escalation skills. And there is a mismatch between what they should do versus what they've been trained to do. So then they rely on the, that use of force training. For example, i seen a video recently of a group of kids who were playing around and they got to wrestling with each other. And then they took off running, doing stuff that teenagers do, sure. playing around. Where Someone called the police on them, thought they did some, something Police officer shows up speed speeding up to the scene. The teenagers had like basketballs or footballs. They had just been playing at a park. They're walking home. He gets out the car, pulls his gun on these teenagers. So a group of them. They're just standing there like, why are you pulling your gun on us? That's because not only is it about the implicit bias, the perception that, oh, okay, these are black teenagers. They probably were doing something wrong. That is the perception based on the research that we've done. But then also... It was this is the only skill I have in my arsenal right now to do something in this situation. And then the officer was also clearly scared in that situation. If those were white teenagers, that situation would have been handled drastically different because they have in their arsenal a different set of skills based on their perceptions of white people and black people. And that's part of what needs to change.
0: Let's take a quick break. We're with Dr. Rashawn Ray of the University of Maryland College Park. We're talking about whether more diverse hiring and policing would make a difference and the differences to be made in police training. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night, ready to send police, fire EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech-savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus with Simply Safe there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners, get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's safe. S-I-M-P-L-I SAFE, that's simplysafe.com slash injustice. Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and our guest is Dr. Rashawn Ray of University of Maryland, College Park. He is a renowned sociologist, a fellow at the Brookings Institution, and his work on diversity in police forces and police training uh, is of great interest to us here. Uh, Before the break, Dr. Ray, you were telling us about how police training really sets the tone in important ways and gives uh, a limited set of tools, but often the wrong set of tools. I wonder if uh, police socialization, the police culture it's sometimes called, what role that plays in those interactions?
1: I think the culture plays a lot. So even within policing, they create a dichotomy that I think is useful, but it's oftentimes not that simple, but it's the warrior versus the guardian perspective. And oftentimes when officers come through the police academy, they are trained to be warriors. Part of being trained to be warriors, I think is two important things I always think about. First, again, they're trained for these worst case scenarios. They are trained to use force. The second thing is that they are trained that the public is the enemy. Instead of the public being viewed as uh, someone who they should protect, instead of the public being viewed as a group of people who they are working with, police officers are trained that the public is the the enemy. I think this is best encapsulated by a comment I heard doing an implicit bias training with a group of police recruits. And I said, I said, well, surely you would approach a young man, in his 20s compared to an elderly woman differently. And even though I I think we we know that they do, but his response was very telling. He said, no, sir. He said, I approach everyone in every situation like they have the ability to kill me at any given time. Oh, my. Like that perspective Mm -hmm. speaks to why, because part of this is the other perception people have. The One perception people have is that younger officers are going to change the culture of policing. No, they won't. Doesn't work like because that. They are trained the exact same way the older ones were. The older ones are the ones who after 15 years realize, wow, the way that I was trained actually doesn't match what's going on. And they've had 15 years of experience to figure that out. Officers coming out of the police academy who are young, they are coming out what they call hot, like they are amped up. They are revved up, ready uh-huh. for the situation. And this is the other thing that place does as well. I've noticed officers, I've, seeing this through my research. Officers will receive a call for service about something nonviolent, but they hear the zip code and they hear the cross streets and they instantly go in hot. They instantly think that something is going to happen. So officers show up escalating those situations when nothing has been stated that there was a weapon. Uh, at times it hasn't even been stated that there was a crime, but they show up ready for something because of the neighborhood. And I think that's so important because a majority of people who live in low income, higher crime neighborhoods. And I say higher crime because if we compare the crime rate now to 30 years ago, it's significantly lower Lower than 30 years ago, even compared to this, to this recent increase, you know, when we have economic angst, whether that be with the great recession or right now with COVID, um, crime increases to a certain extent, but it's nowhere near what it was in the 70s and and even the late 80s, early 90s. But they show up revving that up. So the culture of that plays a role. Another really good example of this is in Minneapolis, of course, where George Floyd happened to be uh, Mm -hmm. killed by Derek Chauvin. Even though Minneapolis Police Department had banned chokeholds the Minneapolis Fraternal Order of Police was still teaching a warrior class to people, and chokeholds was part of that. The result of that was that dozens of Minneapolis residents had been choked out by police officers over the past decade. Now, not only had they been, not only had they been choked out, but there was very little reprimand. On behalf of the department to reprimand those officers. And that's another big problem in policing is the lack of reprimand and accountability internally that police officers have to hold them accountable externally to the people they hurt in the communities that they're supposed to serve.
0: There is very little you can accomplish by way of reform or change if you are not prepared as an organization to hold the people accountable when they cross the organization's lines. If you don't do that, pretty much everything else you might do is is pretty much beside the point.
1: Without a doubt. So I think implicit bias training is important. Um, I do it. And I think our program is one of the best. Not only do we have an in-classroom portion, but of course we have uh, a virtual reality decision-making program that I think is second to none. But There are limitations to these individual level approaches, like implicit bias training, like even the trainings we do, like body-worn cameras, if these changes do not come along with transformative structural changes in law enforcement. And I think it centers on a couple of things. I mean, we talked about where officers live, I think that's one, but the big one is the lack of accountability for civilian payouts for police misconduct. That in most municipalities, millions of taxpayer money, millions, of taxpayer money every year is used to settle police misconduct cases. And this is where it gets highly problematic. This money doesn't simply come from the police department budget. The police department already has their budget set. In certain That's states, right. it's over 33%, right? It's 30 to 40%, like in Minneapolis, like it is in Baltimore or St. Louis or yes. L.A., When there is a civilian in Chicago, I think is one one of the most egregious examples. Over the past two decades, Chicago has spent over $650 million settling police misconduct cases. That money has came from general funds and not the police department budget, not from insurance policies. Imagine what that money could do on the South side of Chicago. As much as people talk about crime on the South side of Chicago, if you really want to reduce crime, research shows you don't throw more police officers on the street. Instead, you invest in education. Build
0: communities.
1: Yep. You invest in a work infrastructure. You invest in small businesses. That money could completely transform the South side of Chicago. So when people talk about defund the police, that's really what they're highlighting is reallocating, reinvesting is shifting money in the general fund budget away from the police department budget to social services and investing in cities. And this is why I think if we really want to hold law enforcement accountable, we have to restructure civilian payouts for police misconduct away from taxpayer money into police department insurance policies. This actually happens with a lot of small municipalities because they don't bring in enough money to actually fund um, lawsuits, essentially. And, and oftentimes these lawsuits doesn't necessarily mean anybody did anything wrong. It could simply be an accident. Somebody slipped and fell and hurt themselves. Sure something else happened. So they need insurance policies. And they can't self-insure.
0: Policies, that's right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. they Self-insured or they join in some court in some sort of conglomerate of small municipalities. And it's important for people to recognize. So for people who uh, I guess might've grown up or came of age in the seventies and eighties, they'll remember this show as in the heat of the night, most police departments in the heat of the night is one of my favorite shows along with Matlock. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, most police departments are similar to in the heat of the night. They simply don't have the resources and the infrastructure. I know the LAPDs and the, you know, the 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 NYPD and Chicago PD get all the limelight, but most police departments are small, so they might join a conglomerate. And this model takes the same approach we do with healthcare. We use this model with healthcare, where hospitals have malpractice insurance. So when surgery goes wrong or a nurse might give the wrong medication because they're rushing and maybe they just messed up, doesn't mean somebody purposely did something. There is a lawsuit and there is a settlement that comes from the hospital um, insurance policy. And as that policy increases, the hospital then says, they do a cost benefit analysis and they say, you know what? It's costing us too much money to have that, that physician perform surgery here. We can no longer keep you. Imagine if that happened in Minneapolis. George Floyd will probably still be alive because Derek Chauvin would no longer be working.
0: That's right. When you have cost associated with wrongdoing, you have to start thinking. And right now, police departments just don't you know i want to ask you about something you've mentioned a few times now you've talked about virtual reality training and this i think is a is a real idea that whose time has come and and i want to uh, give you a full time to explore it you know i think everybody in the audience will have some idea of what virtual reality is you put on a set of uh, goggles and you kind of enter a world in which you move around through the movie uh, for those who haven't experienced virtual reality, maybe give us a very quick description of what that is in general. And then how do you use virtual reality to train police? This is so interesting.
1: I mean, I think you just hit the nail on the head. So people put on virtual reality goggles. They are then immersed in a virtual world. This virtual world can look oftentimes in two different ways. We have both sets, in the lab for applied social science research at the University of Maryland, where we have our lab set up to do this, it might look realistic, like actual people, Um, or it looks like augmented reality, like a super video game. And we have both versions of those. Now, when they enter into the virtual world, you have the goggles on, we have different types of scenarios that officers encounter on a regular basis. This is where we get into what officers normally encounter versus what they train for. What our program is focused on is what officers actually experience on an everyday basis. So suspicious person calls, robberies at stores, domestic house scenes, traffic stops, mental health calls. These particular scenarios make up most of what officers experience. They go into this virtual world, they interact with a person, the person responds to them. The program has over a thousand different responses that fits the way a person would normally respond. So if you say, what are you doing here? The person might respond with, well, it's none of your business. Like I wasn't doing anything wrong, which is what we hear all the time. Or they say, well, I'm just waiting on the bus. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, my neighbor keeps calling the police on me. Typical things that people would say in that moment. What we do is we take that program, we take the same voice, we take the same statements and we vary the person who they're encountering by race and gender. So they might encounter a black person, it might be a black woman, it might be a black man, it might be a white woman, it might be a white man. And so we know from an experimental standpoint, cause we're researchers and sociologists, and social psychologists that we know that the only reason why officers would interact differently is because of what the person looks like. Yes. Not because of the setting, not because of what they sound like. And then what we do is we triangulate police officers' behavior with a set of variables. We can collect officer information on what they say, the tone of their voice, the deference they give to the character, the distance they are from the character, their, their eye movement, their body movement, when they reach for their weapon, when they don't reach for their weapon. And then we have officers take a, a survey to measure their implicit bias with implicit association test. We also then give them a survey to measure their explicit attitudes, just generally what they think about race and social dominance and policing and community and those sort of things. And we put all these variables together. We can also measure officer's stress level through their speech. And we can also measure a set of other physiological factors. We put all this together and it becomes a recipe, a statistical model that we can tell police departments when their officers are more or less likely to exhibit bias because see this was key for us it's not solely about where officers exhibit bias
0: uh-huh.
1: also about where officers don't exhibit bias who are the police officers that don't exhibit bias can we replicate them what sort of training have they had what level of experience have they had what makes sure. them treat everyone the same and then we give recommendations to, to departments to say these are the people who you probably want to have doing your training. These are the people who you want to have in leadership. These are the people who you want to pair up with a younger officer. Now, these other group of officers, these are the ones that you need to work on because their (laughs) level of bias is going to lead
0: to not only a lawsuit,
1: but it's going to lead to someone potentially getting killed.
0: Wow. So has has there been validation of this training over a period of time so that you know how effective this is? Yeah, so we're
1: in the process of finishing our validation. Now I could tell you we've had over 100 police officers go through the, uh, the program and the training. And what we could tell you right now is that we know um, which officers are more or less likely to exhibit bias and which ones aren't. So for example, we can explain away with officer demographics, their conscious bias. So in other words, police officers will tell us in surveys, I mean, we have ways of asking questions that they have preferences for white people over black people. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's not just white officers who think that. That's very, very important to say. But what happens is that experience, um, level of education, the region, all of these factors explain away that bias, explains away any difference. What we can explain away, we cannot explain away unconscious bias. It sticks around no matter what. Yeah. What we think is going on though, is that we, we tailor implicit bias trainings in classroom training that we do over a span of two days. We then tailor that training to the negative outcomes that come from a department. So for example, um, there's one department we worked with, that had pervasive racial biases. There was another department, it was about place. And it was about when factors were unknown And this is a very, very big factor because this is a key outcome in the social science literature and the criminology literature that when there is less known about what officers are entering into, they're more likely to rely on their unconscious biases. That actually makes sense. Everybody does that. If you walk into a setting you're unfamiliar with, your mind is going to try to recall information from something that helps that setting make sense to you. Right. So when less is known, when the setting is more ambiguous, like a suspicious person call, just people standing at a bus stop, compared to being called to someone's house and the person opens the door and identifies themselves as the homeowner, all of a sudden those two different scenarios leads to an overload of implicit bias in the setting that's more ambiguous. So we might tailor an implicit bias program to those suspicious setting calls to help officers do this training repeatedly to get to a point where we see less bias the more they experience it. Because the neat thing about this program is you and me could go into this program 10 times and every single time we would have a different experience. Uh Because we're we're responding differently because we're not going to say the same exact thing every single time. So we're going to say something different and the program's going to say something different. And then the more times people use the program, it's an algorithm. So it builds on itself. So the program is continuously learning like a person uh-huh. uh, and responds differently over time, making this program something that police departments can use for years to come.
0: That's an incredible set of advancements that you've got on the on the brink of possible and promising. That is really amazing. And if you could do this, um, you would be used as a screening tool for recruits, Would it be used as a way, as you said, to channel people within the department? Uh, Would it be used to say, okay, you're not really, at this point, material for a supervisory position, but we think we can turn you into that? I think all of
1: the above. So we've had hundreds of law enforcement experts and current law enforcement officers, including the Department of Homeland Security and the military. We've had tons of uh, elected officials come. And they see it as being useful in all those areas. So one big thing that officers who work in background talk about is their inability to have any sort of advanced screening. So this particular program affords that because, I mean, there are some officers who go through our program and I mean, their level of racial and gender bias is so far off the charts. There's no way they should have ever been a police officer. Program can help with that. There are other people who exhibit bias, but with additional training, that bias can be reduced, doesn't mean they're not going to become a police officer, it just means they need additional training. And then to your point, police departments want to use this for their actual training, as well as continuing education, where it can then be used as a way to -hmm. help make sense of who should be promoted or not. And we really view it as a program that allows to give information to departments at the aggregate level. I mean, we can provide information about specific individuals but more so about cultural and organizational problems that departments have. And that's one of the biggest things we've noticed is that when officers come through, say we have 50 officers from one department come through, one or two officers don't just act the same. It's generally like 20 or 30 of them doing the same sort of stuff, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's what's key that we notice is that we like to focus on individuals, but when we look at them from the group, they're doing very similar things, which suggests they've been trained in the same way And that training needs to change for all of them, not just a couple of them.
0: That is Dr. Rashawn Ray of the University of Maryland College Park. He is also the director of the Laboratory for Applied Social Science Research. And he spoke to us today about diversity in police forces, use of force, and the potential for advanced training through virtual reality. Thanks very much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice.
1: Dr. Harris, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, it was a great conversation.
0: Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this story of a lawyer behaving badly from the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer David Pascula of Chicago, Illinois. Lawyer Pascula's practice was located in the state of Illinois. The law firm... Just him, a small number of associates, and support staff. Lawyer Pascula's specialty is domestic relations, sometimes called family law. Divorce, child custody, adoptions, those kinds of things. According to the authorities in Illinois, the law practice and Lawyer Pascula seem to be doing okay. Lawyer Pascula, quote, served as a chair or committee member for numerous legal organizations, contributed to and authored several articles for legal journals, was well-known in the family law community, and had been invited to give speeches at several bar associations and law schools in the Chicago area about various topics involving family law one of the things that lawyer Pascula did at least once, and probably some other times too, was to serve as something called a guardian ad litem. That is, he would be appointed by a court as a fiduciary to protect the legal interest of people who did not have the capacity to protect themselves. And in one particular case, lawyer Pascula used that position of trust to do something truly unforgivable. In this particular case, a couple was dissolving their marriage. They had children. There was a dispute over custody arrangements. The judge in the case appointed lawyer Pescula guardian ad litem over the couple's children. He would speak to both of the parties and recommend to the court a suitable custody and parenting arrangement. The wife wanted custody, with the husband having a smaller role. But the husband wouldn't go for that. What would lawyer Pascula recommend? How would lawyer Pascula, with his years of experience in family law and custody arrangements, view this difficult situation? And how would he see to the best interest of the children in the family, who he had a legal duty to represent? Well, here's what he did. When the wife and the lawyer for the couple and the husband came to Lawyer Pascula's law firm for an interview, Pascula had the wife come to his private office while her lawyer had been called away into another office. He'd like to help her, he said, but he didn't think a full custody arrangement for her was in the cards. Probably just one parent would get custody and, he implied, it wouldn't likely be her. And then, well, let me give it to you in the language of the Illinois bar authorities who have filed a complaint against lawyer Pascula. They refer to the wife by her initials, N.E. They allege that lawyer Pascula began to forcibly grope N.E. both over and under her clothes. Then they say, lawyer Pescula, and I'll quote, stated to N.E. that in order to receive his support in recommending that she receive sole custody, she only had to do, quote, a little extra something, and that she was, quote, a smart girl, and that if she really wanted her children, he could, quote, do that for her if she would have sex with him. Close quote. N.E. was naturally very upset and concerned about her children. She got up, got away from Pescula, and made an excuse to leave. She then told her own lawyer, who had come with the couple, what happened, and that led to the bar complaint that lawyer Pescula now faces for ethics violations stemming from assault, battery, and sexual crimes while acting as a guardian ad litem. Wait, wait! Can't you hear Lawyer Pascula shouting? Wait! Those are just allegations. I didn't! She's lying! Where's the proof? I would never! Yes, I'm sure you would never try to force women into unwanted sex— grope them forcibly, or anything. So what do you have to say about these three other counts in the bar complaint, in which, in totally unrelated situations, you are alleged to have groped and propositioned three female employees of your firm? I mean, no, not threatening the custody of their kids to get sex, just threatening their jobs and their abilities to support their families, All three of those counts also describe assaults, batteries, and criminal sexual conduct. So, of course, here on Criminal Injustice, we believe in due process and we'll hold back and wait to see just how it all settles out and report back you. So while lawyer Pascula surely is a lawyer behaving badly, we'll wait until the dust settles to give you the special citation, sir, for being a complete and utter piece of shit of a human being. But there is one thing I'm wondering. Why, as of July 25th, 2020, are there no criminal charges? Prosecutors out there, hello? I've got a candidate for your attention right here that's this edition of lawyers behaving truly egregiously badly and that wraps up another episode of criminal injustice subscribe to criminal injustice with our rss feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media review us please a good review will help people find us Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, you could call in and ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Again, 412-407-3389. But if you prefer to write out your question, you can go on that website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Go to the Ask Dave tab on the website and write your question out. Remember, we are a listener-supported program. If you like what you hear and you want to help, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. And for those of you who already support us we thank you. We so appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. With the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police, the search for ways to tame police misconduct has become more intense than ever. Can requiring officers to have private insurance play a role? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.